This is only a brief look in the time we have. I won't be open to, able to open Psalm 22, verse, verse 31 verses, verse by verse. So my aim falls short of a full exposition of this scripture. Before I read the psalm, I'd like to give you its context. And unlike many of David's psalms, this psalm does not match up with any events in his life. I think there's a reason for that. Uh, In fact, the things that are in this psalm do not seem to apply to him directly. They relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ will not take on a body of flesh, as I mentioned, for some thousand years. More more specifically, Psalm 22 is about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus. David prophetically foretold these events with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and it's a wonder to us that that happened. We don't know how it happens. We only understand, as Isaiah said, God knows the end of a matter at the beginning. So before reading the text, bear with me while I give you some important keys to understanding Psalm 22. And these, I would say these are just first thoughts. Let me just say a word about your, your, your study notes. And if you don't have study notes, hold up your hand and someone will bring Yes, Mr. Neal, Master Neal will bring them. Um, what I'd like for you to know that if this psalm is set up to help you better know the crucifixion and the, res- the joy of the resurrection of Christ, I don't believe there's any greater way to grow in your love for Christ than, and, and for the Father than to give careful study to Jesus on the cross. And this psalm offers you that opportunity to grow in your love for Christ. Now, Psalm 22 uh, is, a, is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And it's been said that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a trilogy. I like the way Warren Wiersbe has described these three psalms. Psalm 22 being the good shepherd dying for his sheep. 23 is the great shepherd caring for his sheep. And 24 is the chief shepherd coming for his sheep. Psalm 22 is divided into two parts. Verse 1 through 21 foretells the suffering of the shepherd. And verses 22 through 31 foretells the exaltation of the shepherd. Now Psalm 22 is a very unique psalm, or actually it's a very unique scripture text for this reason. It's a first-person account of the crucifixion given by Christ himself. This is the only place in all of Scripture that we can see and hear the crucifixion through the eyes and words of the Lord Jesus Christ in a first-person account. What I'd like to do, uh, 
I know typically we follow along in our Bibles, but what I'd like to do is read Psalm 22 um, up through verse 21. Read it to you and have you listen. And whether you close your eyes or just listen intently, I would like for you to remember that these words were spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ and very likely spoken from the cross. So I'm reading from the New King James Version, beginning with uh, verse 1, reading through 21. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear me. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people and those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake their head crying. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion, and poured out like water. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the, from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. What I'd like to do is look at this first point. There are cautions we have to take when we approach this psalm. Anytime we approach the atonement or the, uh, the cross work of Christ, 
we should remember this is sacred ground. We cannot proceed but with great caution. We can't fully plumb the depths of the cross. We can only know what God has revealed to us in his scriptures. Second caution is we must limit our understanding to what God has said in his word, in the whole counsel of his word. The third caution is related. There's much, there's, let me move on to this, sorry. The third caution is this. There's much misinterpretation and misunderstanding on what Christ suffered on the cross. And we have to be careful here, always looking to the scriptures to see if these things are true. Here's the fourth and greatest error. It's to read our own speculation, our own imagination, or even our theology into the scripture text concerning the cross. We must let the scriptures speak for themselves. God's word tells us what God wants us to know about the cross, the atonement. We not need embellish the horrors of the cross with our own vain imaginations. And I want to give you a couple of examples. Martin Luther himself, who a stalwart of the Reformation said this about Christ. Christ was made sin itself. He was the greatest transgressor. I don't agree with what Martin Luther said, and I'll show you why from Scripture. Max Lucado said this, The spotless lamb was blemished. He became sin, the very object of God's hate. R.C. Sproul, who I believe is a strong man of God and I agree with much, I've benefited from his ministry, I disagree with what he said about the atonement. Here's what he said. On the cross, Jesus became the most intense, dense concentration of evil ever experienced on this planet. Jesus was the ultimate obscenity. The Bible tells us that God is too holy to even look at sin, and he cannot bear to look at this concentrated, monumental condensation of evil. His eyes are averted from his son. I don't agree with that. I'm going to show you from Scripture why. Lastly, Kenneth Copeland, speaking on Trinity Broadcasting Network, and you can hear anything on that network, God was not his father anymore. He took upon himself the nature of Satan. I even hate to say those words. It's just false. Well, so I say to you, let us proceed with caution. And the first point here is we see the forsaken Christ calls to his father in anguish in verse 1. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And the double use of the name, my God, my God, is a Hebraism showing a close personal relationship. When Jesus said, Simon, Simon, he was showing his close personal relationship with Peter. 
and Christ is doing this from the cross. Of course, this plaintive cry of distress from the cross is also given to us in Matthew 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34. And we should not be surprised that in Christ's greatest moment of suffering and trial, the scriptures are on his lips. We shall see and hear in a moment no other scripture is more apt for Jesus to recall while he's on the cross than Psalm 22. As we look here at the opening words, he says, we, we, we see that Christ is left completely alone on the cross without his father's help. And in verse 1b, the scripture said, he says, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. And then in verse 2, he says, oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. It's important to know the word forsaken. And this, this is in your note. No, it's not in your notes. Uh, let me just say in the Old Testament, the word forsaken, uh, I'm sorry, it's in your notes, but it's not on the screen. There you go. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word forsaken is the Hebrew word asab. And it's often translated forsaken. It's in the sense of to leave behind, to leave alone, or to abandon. And certainly, Jesus is left alone on the cross. In a sense, he is abandoned on the cross. The Father is not helping him. The New Testament picks up the wording the same way. Uh, forsaken is the Greek word inkatalipo, and it means to leave, to desert, to abandon, in the sense of to leave totally helpless and uncared for. That describes Christ on the cross. The second point here is that Christ is completely alone on the cross for a reason. It's because of his mission. He alone is offering himself, his body, as a sacrifice for sin to the Father. The Father could not offer him help in this matter. He has to do it alone. One thing to see here, there's no separation of the triune God here. God the Father has withdrawn his support and his fellowship from Christ's divine nature. I'm sorry, has not withdrawn his fellowship from his divine nature, but from his human nature. This is the very reason Christ took on a body of flesh, that he might make it as an offering for sin to the Father. In Hebrews 2.14 and verse 17, the scripture says, As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And 17 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brothers, his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. Now Christ's body of flesh is nailed to the cross with all of its human frailties, including extreme mental, emotional, physical exhaustion, torment, and pain. Not only has the Father left him, but the disciples he loves have left him. They have scattered in fear that they too might be crucified. Well, thirdly, I want you to see Christ is not totally alone. His enemies surround him. In verse 7 and 8, those who see me ridicule ridicule me. The people that were passing by, they would look up, he would look down, and they would mock him and scoff him that he claimed to be king of the Jews. In verse 12 and 13, we have strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. In verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Each of these verses tell us the domain of darkness is closing in. Christ hangs exposed, vulnerable to his enemies on the cross. Satan and his demon horde are close by, sensing victory. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And these forces were present in the verses that I just shared with you. Second thing I want you to see is the forsaken Christ remains in the Father's will and love throughout his time on the cross. The whole of Scripture testifies to this. Christ is never out of his Father's will. The entire time he's on the cross the entire time he's offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. We see in John 3.16, God so loved the world, the Father so loved the world, he gave. Christ is on the cross because he is obedient to the Father's will. And in Isaiah 53.10, it says, It pleased the Lord God to bruise him. In Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son. Jesus said in John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In Luke 22.42, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Philippians 2.8 says that Christ was obedient to the point of death. Always in the will of the Father. The second part is Christ always is in the Father's love. Get a little ahead there. The three persons of the Trinity are not separated in, in the cross work of Christ. 
And it's love that is one of the main characteristics of their relationships. Matthew 3.17 and 17.5, the voice from heaven at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the Mount of Transfiguration as he prepared for the cross, the voice from heaven was God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John 5.20, Jesus said, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. One of those greater works was the cross. John 10.17, listen to this. My Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. And finally, uh, well, I've got two more that I want to share with you. Because this is a major point to understand. Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ was an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father. It pleased the Father for Christ to lay down his life. And you can't really use typology or examples in Scripture to make your final point, but I want you to just consider what Genesis 22 says. God told Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, even as the knife came up in Abraham's hand, there was not even a moment when Abraham did not love Isaac. And I might just offer to you that there was never a moment when Christ was on the cross that the father had anything in his heart toward his son except love. This takes us to a third point that may be even harder than the last point. The forsaken Christ remains sinless on the cross. In Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, the scripture says, when, when you, speaking of God the Father, makes his soul, speaking of Christ, an offering for sin, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Get it that he's the righteous servant throughout. And then in 1 John 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is an offering, a sacrificial sin offering to the Father. 1 Peter 1.9 makes it clear that our redemption is based on the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 3.18, he adds this, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Hebrews 9.26, and I use these scriptures because I think this is the point that really refutes those examples that, are, that, that I read you in the beginning. 
He has appeared in Hebrews 9.26 to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the verse that you will stumble on if there are any of these you would stumble upon. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteous righteousness of God in him. So the point here um, is this word sin for us, and I have this in your notes. Christ became a sin offering for us. And in being a sin offering, it means that our sins were imputed to him. Our sins were transferred to his account. In fact, the word imputed here means to lay to the account of. means to lay to the account of. And that's exactly what happened. Our sins were laid upon Jesus, and his righteousness was imputed to us. In Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ suffered God's full wrath, paying the penalty of sin we deserve. And whatever the wrath, I think this is a, I'm going to wrap it up here in just a minute or two. Whatever the wrath of God is, we cannot fully comprehend. But what it certainly does include, according to the scripture, is this. It is the physical death of Christ. It is important to understand that the physical death of Christ, his body, is what paid the penalty for our sin. His physical body was the propitiation for our sin. He didn't die spiritually, as Kenneth Copeland says. So whatever wrath is, Christ is dying in verse 15. He's at the brink of death. You have brought me to the dust of death. And I would say to you, do not minimize the physical death of Christ. It was a shock to the angels who were watching. It was a joy to Satan and the demons who were also watching. In this key verse 21, Jesus says, He has answered me. And in verse, in this verse, we know that God the Father has heard the cry of Jesus on the cross. And this is where the, uh, in verses 21 through 31, we see the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And in the final part, Christ praises the Father, and the Father exalts the Son at the, at the resurrection. Remember the upper room, 17.1, Jesus says, Father, my hour has come. And he says, glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. And the Son, upon resurrect, being resurrected, I go through these very quickly. The Son glorifies the Father in the church in verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will, I will praise you. Secondly, in verse 23, the Son calls on Israel to glorify the Father. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And fear of him, all you offspring of Israel. In verse 24, the Son extols the Father's faithfulness. 
For he is not abhorred. And this, listen to this one. Verse 24. For he, God the Father, has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried, he heard him. When people say that God turned his face from Christ on the cross, they're using Habakkuk 4.4, where it says that God cannot look on sin. Jesus Christ was sinless on the cross. And the Father's heart, as even as he poured out his wrath upon him, was certainly broken in love for his son. Finally, the son praises the father in the great assembly. And it's very likely the great assembly here refers to the entire heavenly host, the church in Israel, all those who have called upon the name of Christ. And finally, I close with this, the declaration of the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ. In verses 26 through 31, we no longer have the first person account. We have a declaration. And because it was written by the Holy Spirit, let us name it the declaration of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ. Verse 25, uh, and the beginning with verse 25 through the last six verses, listen to this. The poor shall, and I think this is looking forward to the millennial kingdom. And this is the joy for which Jesus suffered the cross. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity. And you are included in that posterity if you're in Christ. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. That he has done this. It is finished. And that brings us to a conclusion here. But what then should be our response? To this wonderful, precious psalm. Well, because he's done it, because Christ's cross work is finished, we have work to do in the name of Christ. We have a story to proclaim in the name of Christ. And we should remember Psalm 22 as we grow in our love for Christ, love for one another, and love for those who are without Christ. May we think of these things as we continue our journey as a church.